Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through chapter 22, verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurements which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, 
each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring glory into it, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So if you're listening to the radio, and you scroll, if you're just scrolling through the radio, you may come across the station. There's a, a, a famous song that's regularly pray, played where the author, the singer, songwriter, is recounting a difficult time in his life where he's, he's at this restaurant and uh, he looks at, looks at the waitress and says, I'm having a really hard day. The words of the song are, the, the world's been kicking my behind. Life ain't been a friend of mine. Lately, I've been feeling kind of low. And he says, would you please just give me like a new word, something I haven't heard before. And the lady points behind the counter and says, look at the sign. And uh, the sign says in this song, everything's going to be all right. And the lady says, ain't, ain't nobody got to worry about nothing. Don't go hitting that panic button. It's not worth spilling your drink. Everything's going to be okay. And the singer's response was, whatever monkey was on my back, it fell off just like that down into the deep blue sea. Well, we all constantly look for hope and we're all constantly looking for an encouraging word, a refreshing word in times of trouble or difficulty. And this man found a helpful word from a stranger uh, that was a general blanket statement, enough that you could put it on a sign so that anybody could look at it and think, oh, okay. Yeah, everything's going to be okay. There's no real basis for that. There's no knowledge of his life or his circumstances that have informed that. It's just a quippy little sign uh, that we often hear. We often settle for this easy word of comfort, this easy word of encouragement. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. You're going to make it through. It might be something like, let go and let God. It might be something like, just don't think about it and it's going to be fine. Our world gives us easy and vain comforts that are groundless. The gospel provides us with a much firmer, more certain word of hope to endure difficulty. 
So John shares this certain hope with us this morning. It's a vision of the coming kingdom of God where he will restore all things to be the permanent dwelling place for God and his people. He's writing to a group of churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire under the oppression of Emperor Nero. People are being put to death for their faith in Christ. He's writing to a group of churches facing the same sufferings we saw last week that categorize the last days. Persecution, false teaching, worldly temptations of the flesh trying to draw us away, lukewarm Christianity, not, not feeling affections for the Lord. All threats that still face the church today. So John shares this vision of the coming new creation to strengthen and help Christians endure the last days. To endure with hope. So just like John's audience needed this word, needed this vision of the coming kingdom to endure, we also need to see the coming kingdom of God, the new creation, see it rightly as motivation for us to press on in this life. So John's vision of the new creation gives us hope and guides our expectations as we press on. Life is, life is difficult. Sin's real. Lukewarm Christianity knocks at every one of our doors. But there's something much better in store. The world tells us that this life is paradise, right? Just living another day in paradise. But really, brothers and sisters, we're anticipating paradise. We're anticipating the new creation paradise. So I want us to persevere as we look to three realities in Revelation 21 and 22. Three realities of the new creation. The first reality is God's place. God's place. The second reality is God's people. God's people. The third reality is God's presence. Now, if you um, are going to do a lot of study in the book of Revelation, you're going to realize that there are about 100 million opinions on things and about 100 different ways that people approach the book of Revelation. And far from diving into those things, I want us to dive into a picture. I want us to dive into an image, a picture, a vision of what this new creation is going to be like. I want to see the glorious realities that will be there. So we look at um, our first point, God's place, and it's the new heavens and the new earth. We're spiritual beings with physical bodies living on a physical earth. It's difficult for us to see beyond what's right in front of us, right? Some of y'all are like me and lack imagination. It's hard to be creative to think outside the box, which is why it's really helpful to have novelists like Tolkien, like C.S. Lewis, or whoever you might like to read to kind of help catapult your, catapult your imagination. They help us see things out of this world. They help us see things that in this world that maybe we don't see so clearly. In many cases, uh, these people draw our sights 
away from our reality, away from our immediate circumstances and see things as they really are. And this is what John's doing in Revelation 21 and 22. What John is doing is drawing a picture for us. He's showing us the reality of this new creation. He's showing us the reality of God's place. And as we look at this reality, I want us to see one major thing. The new heavens and the new earth, the new earth are a transformation of the entire universe to be a right dwelling place for God. We see in the beginning of Genesis that God was present in the Garden of Eden. He walked with Adam and Eve, but after Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden. They were removed from God's presence. And like Adam and Eve, we are all sinners, unholy separated from God's presence. On our own, in our sinful nature, we are separated from God. And Psalm 5, uh, Psalm 5 verse 4 says that the Lord does not delight in wickedness. And he cannot dwell. Evil cannot dwell with him. So not only was humanity the pinnacle of God's creation, which he said it's good. But now humanity is tainted with sin. Unholy and separated from God. Not only was humanity tainted with sin, but the whole earth, all of creation was corrupted. Right? We read this in Genesis 3, 17. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. God's creation has been subjected to barrenness as it's been corrupted with sin and sorrow. This is what Paul gets to in Romans chapter 8 when he says that the whole creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The whole creation is groaning in this curse. The whole creation is affected by the fall. It's all affected by sin. It's all corrupted. So because of the curse, work is difficult. Paint dries really fast in the summertime. Electrical outlets zap you if you're not careful. You can't pour concrete many days in the winter. It's like the earth is just opposed to our work. But the curse hasn't just opposed our work. The curse of this earth, this present life, has opposed our bodies. Right? You woke up this morning with some funny pain in your neck that you didn't feel yesterday. Thyroids regularly flaring up. Our bodies develop strange diseases, strange illnesses. Children are born with deformities, chromosomal abnormalities. The entire creation is under this curse. It's not just cursed with difficulty, though, but it's cursed with chaos. Right? So we, we read in, in verse 1 that the sea was no more. And far from thinking that there's going to be no water in this new creation, we should see that there's going to be no chaos in this new creation. John over and over in the book of Revelation uses the words sea and ocean to refer to chaotic events, 
to chaos in this world. Common image in apocalyptic literature in John's day. Ocean equals chaos. John says there's no sea in this new creation. It's going to pass away. Well, we see, I mean, events come to our mind. Earthquakes that hit Turkey. Hurricanes that strike, that strike Sullivan's Island. 34 years later, they still have ripple effects. We still think about Hurricane Hugo. It's a big milestone, always brought back to. Rightfully so, it's destroyed, it destroyed thousands of homes. It took many lives. We live in a world that's in chaos. Tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes. But John gives us hope. Take heart. This earth is not all that there is. It's not all that there is. God promises to transform this earth just like he promises to give glorified bodies, resurrected bodies to his people. He promises to transform all of creation to be a new heaven and new earth that are qualitatively different than this one qualitatively different. In Genesis 1, God spoke all things into existence. He spoke all creation by the word of his power. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 5, he declares by his words, I'm making all things new. Heaven and earth in Genesis 1 were created and separated. In Revelation 21, we have a picture of of heaven and earth that are incredibly connected. We don't have heaven and earth. We have a heaven that's on earth. We have a heavenly earth in the new creation. Why? Because God dwells there. God's going to be in the new creation. That's what makes it new. That's what makes it pure. And because the former things of earth and heaven, along with its corruption, along with its chaos, have passed away in this new creation, there will be no more sorrow for sin. Hear that? No more sorrow in this new creation. 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Verse 4 says a whole lot without a lot of words. One sentence communicates many, many, many books of realities. Think about it. The sufferings that you experience, any number of them, any one of them, pain in your back, thyroid issues, skinned knees, loose teeth, broken bones, loneliness, things of the past. More than that, no natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, fires, gone. No evil intentions, murder, thievery, lying, greed, selfishness, gone. Miscarriages, car crashes, Cancers will no longer kill. They'll be gone. They'll no longer kill because death, the final enemy, will be done away with. In this new creation, Jesus' defeat of death will be on absolute, total, grand, full display. 
There will be no death in this new creation. Brothers and sisters, this new creation heritage of Christians, this inheritance is free from any of the pains and sufferings you experience. Anything that comes to your mind of hard, anything that's a burden to you, whatever's on your mind that you think, you know, my wife's struggling, my husband's struggling, my kids are struggling, my mom, she, she's got this thing going on, all of those things are going to be passed. None of those things will be experienced because God is reversing the curse of the old creation. He's reversing the curse by fulfilling his promises to bring fullness of life, fruitful work, radiating holiness, and everlasting joy. This is prophesied all throughout the book of Isaiah, specifically in Isaiah chapter 65. Verses 17 to 23, and it's just so good. I'm going to read it all. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sounds of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and eat of their fruit. They won't build and someone else inhabit it. They won't plant and another eat it. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. And they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the prophesied new creation realities. All of the curse will be reversed. This new creation, everything will be made right. The new heaven and the new earth are the fulfillment of all creation. Genesis 1 and 2, God speaks. Revelation 25, God speaks. Creation and humanity were cursed from the fall. In this new creation, there will be no curse. Sinless people. People without suffering. A river flowed from Eden, giving life to the garden. In Revelation 22, 1 and 2, a river flows from the throne, giving life to all creation, humanity included. The tree of life is present in the garden, but they're restricted from eating. The tree of life is present in the new creation and it's given to all who wash their robes in the blood of the lamb. Revelation 22, 14. But most significantly, in the garden, Adam failed to mediate God's blessing and rule to all creation. 
But in the new creation, God promises he will be there to dwell and rule perfectly as the king. He will rule perfectly from his throne. He will, he is determined to make a new creation that's a perfect dwelling place for him and his people. Which brings us to the second point this morning, God's people. God's people, the bride of the lamb. This new creation is described as a bride coming down from heaven for her husband. Verses 2, verses 9 and 10. Verse 2, he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Later, he spends a lot of time, though, talking about this this bride as the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and describes its walls and its gates and its floors and all of those things. So is this bride a people or is this bride a place? Is it a city or is it a people? John spends time describing them, the bride, as both. I think John's, I think what John is saying is that, that this bride is both people and place, but the place points to the people, right? The place points to the people. So throughout the Old Testament, the Lord refers to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is the capital city of Israel where the temple uh, was built and God's presence dwelt. Over and over in the Old Testament, he refers to Jerusalem as his bride. Jerusalem stood symbolically for God's people. Throughout the Old Testament, he would refer to Jerusalem as, as his people, as his bride, as literally to be a city of peace where God dwelt among his people on earth. The Lord says in Isaiah 2, verse 2, to Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Jerusalem was to be, Jerusalem was to have the Lord as their God, as her God, and they were to be his people, living in devotion to him, holiness and submission. But what happens? What happens? Well, Isaiah 2, 5 says, what wrong did your fathers find in me? This is the Lord saying to Jerusalem, what did your, what's your fathers find wrong with me? That they went far from me and they went after worthless idols and became worthlessness. The people of this city of holiness traded the incomprehensible riches of God, the riches of his blessing, and they went after other gods. Romans 1.25 gives a glimpse of this. It says, any unrighteous, any who run away from the Lord, any who don't believe in him, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This Jerusalem failed to be the city of peace where God dwelt. But just like, like in a car accident, we don't blame the car, the inanimate object, for the destruction. No, the, the car didn't decide to jump across the lane, but the person, the person at the wheel bears responsibility for it. In the same way, Jerusalem, a city, is filled with people 
who went astray from the Lord. So uh, he often refers to city, an inanimate object that is filled with people. In this new creation, God is making a new Jerusalem to fulfill all that the old one pointed to. He's making a new city, a holy city, a new Jerusalem to be a people he will dwell with. So this people is a place. It's also described a lot by its walls and structures. We'll get there. But it's also a people, God's people. And we need to understand that, that the bride of the Lamb is not just the church. The bride of the Lamb is not only the people of the New Testament after the cross. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, Paul says that the mystery of marriage refers to Christ and the church. Paul's, Paul's specifically writing the New Testament people using New Testament language, but the implication of Ephesians 5.32, he quotes Genesis 2.24, the implication of that is that marriage points to God, marriage points to the relationship between the lamb and his people. Because he, he used the same imagery in the Old Testament, right? The Lord and Jerusalem, his bride. Jesus and the church, his bride. When you see this connection, it's not, not just specifically Jesus and the church, but it's the lamb in all people of all times who have faith in the lamb. Right? The New Testament church is the people of God established at Pentecost with the outpouring of the Spirit on their hearts. The new creation bride of the lamb is all people who've been washed by the blood of Jesus, including Old Testament people of faith, people who trusted in God and his promises, right? The Old Testament sacrifices were imperfect. It could not take away sins. But the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 15, says that, the, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And because of his new covenant sacrifice, because of his sacrifice, of his life, he redeemed those under the first covenant, right? Jesus perfected for all time by his one sacrifice those who are being saved, right? All of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the spotless sacrificial lamb who died to take away sins, period. By a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, this is the truth John's highlighting in his description of the new Jerusalem, of the holy city in Revelation 21, specifically verses 12 and 14. He says that uh, it had high walls, 12 gates, and the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel. But it also had 12 foundations, and on the foundations were written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This city is established on Old Testament and New Testament saints. It includes all people from every tribe, nation, tongue, language, across all the earth, across all generations, across all ages and decades, who have faith in the Lamb, who've been bought and purchased by His blood. So we one day will worship with Jacob. One day we'll sing with Rahab. We'll stand there with Peter, and though we might face the temptation to ask him why he said some of the things he said, we won't because we'll be worshiping the Lamb with him. Which reminds me of the song, O Church Arise. 
nearly every time it brings me to tears when we get to this, this line, uh, because of this reality. When saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. There's one common salvation for all who have faith in the Lamb. It's a salvation found only in the Lamb of God who conquered sin and takes away your sin. Jesus is the only way of salvation. And this is characteristic of everybody in the new creation. Every person, everybody in this new creation will be like, like the one he describes in verses 6 and 7. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. He will be my son. He will, I will be his God and he will be my son. Only those who have drank of the water of the lamb, only those who have conquered through Jesus by faith in his finished work, only those people will inherit the new creation. And as if it wasn't clear, he restates in verse 8, who's not going to inherit the kingdom? He says, but as for the cowardly, those who turn to worldliness when the temperature gets turned up and they're called to give an answer for their faith, the cowardly, as for the faithless, the detestable, as for murders, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. I want to appeal, appeal to you this morning, not, not to twist your arm. I want to appeal to you. What are you known for? What are you known for? If you make a practice of these things, John's clear. He's clear. Your inheritance isn't blessed life with God. That's reserved for those who are known by being a conqueror in Jesus. No, your, your inheritance is the lake of fire, the second death. It's torment apart from God's grace. Now you, now, you may be able to justify your sin. You may be able to say, well, like I didn't actually murder anybody. Well, I didn't actually commit sexual immorality with anybody. But Jesus is clear in Matthew 5 that sin runs much deeper than our actions. Right? He says that if, you, if you've been angry with your, your brother, you're liable to judgment, this judgment. If you've committed lust against anybody in your mind, with your eye, you've committed adultery. You've committed sexual immorality. Your patterned white lies to cover your tail still lies. Sin runs deeper than our actions. It comes from a heart of unbelief. It comes from an old heart of stone. You need to see that sin is liable to God's judgment. Sin is punishable by the Lord. And it's not just a punishment that's a slap on a wrist. See the consequences of your sin as severe. Punishment for sin is far worse than any discipline your parent might give you. It's far worse, kids, than a timeout. It's far worse than missing time with your friends or suspension from work. Punishment for sin is the lake of fire, the second death. But praise be to God, he extends water of life to all who are thirsty. 
right? Are you, Jesus says, come to him if you're thirsty. He says, I'm the wa- I'm living water. Come to me, all who are thirsty, and you'll be satisfied. You'll never thirst again. Whoever believes in him is given life by the Spirit. So are you thirsty? Do the pains of life wear on you? You realize this world's not going to satisfy you? Look to Jesus. Jesus downed the whole entire cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for you. He took every last drop of God's wrath so that those who are thirsty don't have to drink from that cup, but can drink from the cup of life that he gives them. See the salvation offered through the Lamb. Look to him to conquer. Look to him for life in this present darkness. This is, this is the hope for, for all who've looked to the Lamb. Doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. Doesn't mean Christians are free from sin and, and free from struggle. We're still tempted to lie. We're still tempted to be bitter, to, to commit adultery, to lust. Though we're not perfect, the reality of holiness is objective of God's people. It's an objective reality a positional fact that if you have faith in Jesus, you are a conqueror. Not because of your perfection, far from it, but because of Jesus who is holy. Peter calls Christians a holy nation. Paul in Ephesians 1, 4 says that you've been chosen to be holy and blameless. Now on one hand, this You could read this and say, yeah, I need to be holy and blameless. Yes. But what what Paul is saying is these, these are blessings you already have. You already are holy and blameless. Not because of your sinlessness. Not because of your sinlessness, but because of Jesus' sinlessness. If you're united to Jesus, you have a position of holiness before God. Righteous Jesus died for unrighteous sinners, unrighteous you, so that unrighteous you could have Jesus' righteousness before God. Because you've been united to Jesus, his righteousness covers you. And because the Father sees Jesus as righteous and holy and blameless, everything spotless, he looks at you, covered in Jesus' spotlessness, covered in Jesus' righteousness as holy and righteous and blameless. You are objectively righteous, beloved. Right? Paul's words in in 2 Corinthians 5.17 are so true of you. You are a new creation. You are holy and blameless. But it's not fully visible yet. Right? It's not fully visible yet. We still sin. But this, this, this objective reality will be the case in full visibility, and full display in the new creation. This is what John's hammering away at in verses 9 to 22 with all of this city talk, with all of these rare jewels, with all of these priceless artifacts. He says that the new creation, God's bride, the people of God, will be perfectly holy in every single way and aspect. He states at first in in verse 8 that there's going to be no traces of sin or wickedness. But just because we don't have sin or wickedness there doesn't mean mean anything. It's not enough just to be without sin. We would need righteousness. We would need holiness. 
The bride is adorned in perfect holiness as she radiates the glory of God. Verse 10. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So then the bride comes down radiating God's glory, having God's glory in her. She's been with God, just like Moses, when he saw God's backside, his face radiated a little bit and terrified everybody. The bride will see God's glory entirely unveiled. More unveiled than the apostle saw Jesus' face and his clothes shining on the, trans, on the Mount of Transfiguration. This bride will see Jesus' face. Will see the face of God in chapter 22. They will see his glory fully without any veil. And she will shine as a transformed bride for all eternity. Completely new. John uses all of these gems that Michael read earlier. Fine gems, fine metals, gold that's as, as smooth and crystal clear as glass. Crystal, towering walls of jasper, foundations with every jewel, floors covered with gold. Gigantic gates made of a single pearl. Now, as I was researching, the largest pearl known to man is like two foot wide, about like one foot tall, right? And that pearl's worth a hundred million dollars. These gates are far bigger than two foot by one foot, considering the walls are 225 feet. John says these walls are 144 cubits tall, which is about 215, 220 feet. Can you imagine the size of gates on those things? And think about that massive pearl. All of these things John is using to, to give us pictures to think and see that this new creation is going to be perfectly glorious. Adorned like a bride with fine jewelry. The new creation, the people of God is going to be beautiful in holiness. But she's not just going to be beautifully holy. She's going to be beautifully perfect. The holy city is perfectly cubical, right? We have bad pictures of cubicles uh, being tucked in. Uh, but in Hebrew, in Hebrew apocalyptic literature, uh, the, the number 12 is very symbolic. The number 12 is a symbol standing for perfection, uh, holiness, completion. And uh, John says that every measurement of this city, its length, its width, its height, all of those measurements are 144 cubits. Uh, which, not 144 cubits, I'm sorry, those were the walls. He, it's, uh, he says that all the measurements are, are 144 cubits. Sorry, 12,000 stadia. That's what the measurements of the city are. They're 12,000 stadia. 12, standing for perfection, for completion. What John's trying to draw our mind to here is to see that this holy city is perfectly cubical, but what's a cubicle got to do with anything? He, what he's pointing to is that the measurements of this new city being cubical and so massive, like 1,500 miles of a cube, are showing the perfection and the fulfillment of the holy of holies in the Old Testament. 
right? The Holy of Holies was uh, like 20 cubits by 20 cubits of a cube. The Holy of Holies was, was a place in the temple where God's presence dwelt. And only one person once a year was allowed to go back in there. With all this imagery of precious jewels, of towering walls, of perfect symmetry, reminiscent of the Holy of Holies, John's drawing us to see that this new creation will be a massive Holy of Holies where God will dwell, not just with one person once a year, but with all his people for all time. The new Jerusalem, the holy city, the bride of the Lamb will be the fulfillment of the Holy of Holies, the fulfillment of the most holy place. And she'll need no need of a priest to enter it because her high priest will be with her. You see this? This this is our hope. We look forward to a day where we will be perfected and with unveiled faces in entirety. We will behold his glory and we will already be transformed in his image on that day. We are in his image, beloved, but one day... We will be fully beholding God's image and we will be fully glorified with him. No more sin, perfect holiness, no struggles of lukewarmness, but we will radiate with white hot worship, with fullness of joy. But we're not there yet. We're still on this side of eternity. so, So what for us? Well, embrace your salvation. Embrace the objective reality of your salvation. Uh, the words of Martin Luther have been sticking out with me this week as I've, I've been thinking about this passage. He says, be a sinner and let your sin be strong or sin boldly as, as some would paraphrase him. But let your trust for Christ, your trust in Christ to be stronger. It's not a call to, to like go out and sin as much as you want because this objective thing about your holiness and your blamelessness will keep you from doing that. What he's telling you is to embrace the gospel in your life. Embrace the fact that you sin. Embrace it. Say, I'm a mess, and there's no hiding it. You come into my house, you'll know, I'm a mess. Embrace your sin. Confess your mess. Confess it to your friends, your family, your small group members. But far stronger than you embrace your mess, than you embrace your sin, embrace the Savior who brings you from your sin and gives you victory over this world. Embrace Jesus who's given victory. Embrace Jesus over your sin as the one who satisfies with waters of life. See him as the groom who secured eternal adornment for you. Embrace him. And when we embrace this radical grace, our salvation, when we, when we embrace this radical grace that brings salvation to unworthy sinners, we will pursue holiness. We will. When we see that we're saved by grace, we'll heed the call in Philippians 2.12 to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Work it out. Because as we behold Jesus, as we look to the spotless lamb, we will be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. We will be perfectly holy before God in his presence. It will be visible. It will be lived out. So live out the holiness now. Pursue the holiness now. The bride is sent from God, adorned in holiness by God and she's presented 
to God, to be with him in this new creation. Which brings us to our third point, the reality of God's presence. God dwells with man in this new creation. We've touched on this from the beginning, but we need to see that this is the most significant of realities of this new creation. It's the one thing that all other realities hinge on. Perfect holiness is a great blessing. Freedom from sin and sorrows is a great blessing. But if God's not there, those things are unsatisfactory. They're unappealing. They're futile. Without God's presence, the new creation is not worth it. So the greatest truth and the greatest blessing of the new creation is God's presence with us. He says says in chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. In the Old Testament, we've been talking about this the past couple of weeks. The Old Testament, God's glory, he manifests in a cloud. He manifests to Moses and he showed Elijah, Elijah coming down on a cloud over a mountain. Eventually, God told Moses, he told Israel to establish a tabernacle or a tent of meeting where God would dwell as they traveled throughout their wilderness. God would, God would come and descend on the tabernacle and then he'd lift up and go somewhere else and they'd follow him and he'd descend on the tabernacle, so on and so forth. And then God finally, God finally led them and called them to establish a temple where he could permanently dwell and permanently reside. But that didn't, that didn't last. As, as Israel sinned, the glory of God departed. These dwelling, these dwelling places pointed to something far greater. They were pointing to Jesus. They were pointing to Jesus who came as God's dwelling place among men. John 1.14 says that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt is literally the word tabernacled. And what John and John 1 is trying to say is that Jesus brought the glory of God among us. God's glory was among us. And in, in chapter 2, verse 22 of John, he says that Jesus is the temple. His body is the temple. Permanent dwelling place of God. And those who believe in Jesus are filled with his spirit... And as the Spirit is God's presence and the Spirit dwells in you, Paul says you're the temple of God. Right? If you are a believer and you have the Spirit, you are called God's temple because the Spirit's with you. But Jesus tabernacling and the Spirit's indwelling also point to something greater. They point to something beyond here and now. John uses the same word tabernacled in 21.3 to talk about God's glory as he demonstrates and says that these things are foreshadows. These things are glimpses of the ultimate dwelling of God with man. Jesus' first coming will be fulfilled as the triune living God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwell with his people for all eternity. He'll tabernacle with us for eternity. The whole creation will be his dwelling place. And it won't be restricted. There will be no absence of his presence. So here and now, like a child will call out in the middle of the night for his parents. Right? And good parents are going to come because their child's afraid of the dark. 
in this new creation, there's going to be no children crying out, right? One, there's going to be no dark. And two, our Father is going to be with us for all eternity. There will be no need to cry out because the Lord will never abandon them. Christians, you'll be protected from, for all eternity by God's presence. The high walls, the open gates, the absence of night in this new creation tell us there's no threat to this kingdom. No enemies will overcome it. No sorrow simply because God is there. Helps us see the new creation rightly. But also the bride's only going to be perfectly holy because she radiates the glory of God. More clearly than Moses seeing God's backside, the bride of Christ will see him fully and experience him fully and shine fully in light of his glory. They'll see his face in the new creation and worship freely. But not just because he's shining like a light in a room, but because what Peter says from our passage last week in uh, 2 Peter 1.19 is that the morning star rises in your hearts. The light of Christ will be shining in fullness in the hearts of all his creation. So God's presence brings fullness of life to his people. It's a new creation with no suffering because God's there. It's a holy bride radiating his glory because God is there. Those things, those things are great for the future, but today's hard. So in order to endure, in order to press on, look to those new creation promises. Look to the inheritance that we have in Christ. Persevere by looking to the hope of presence with God in the new creation. God's faithful. He's a covenant-keeping God. He shows steadfast love to all his people. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, He's a rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Trust in the faithful God who will bring these realities about. He's not like the passive man who puts off doing what he said until the very last minute. He's faithful to keep his word for all time. If you're in Christ, the, these realities, these promises of the new creation are, are present for you. You are objectively holy because of Jesus. He's present with you now through the Spirit to care for you in your sufferings. You have other image bearers around you to help care for your sufferings in whom God's presence dwells. Trust the church. Trust, trust the Spirit and dwelt people to help you. His promises are true now that he'll never leave you, forsake you. His promises are true now that he works all things out together for good to those who love him. And their good is that they would be transformed into his image. If he began a good work in you, he's going to be faithful to bring it to the end. So look to the promised new creation See the faithful God who declares he's going to make all things new, who adorns a beautiful bride for himself and promises that he's going to dwell with her for eternity. Let's pray.